Thank you so much, Joseph. I'm so glad I gave you a scholarship. And uh, you made me proud today, and thank you so much for uh, singing for us. Um, I can only tell you that Dr. Allen's little uh, display here today really hurt. Uh, that coming from a man who made a D in homiletics, and, uh, and so... Uh, we will just have to consider it. I've got enough reading material to last me for a while, and who knows? Uh, after I read all that, I may actually learn how to preach. Now, this morning we're in the first chapter of the book of Titus, and there are only two kinds of people that need to hear this message. So if you don't fall in one of those two kinds of people, you may either sleep or you're dismissed. You may go. The two kinds of people that need to hear this message this morning consist, number one, of anyone who is ever going to be listening to a pastor preach in the future. You may be on a pulpit committee. Uh, you may not be on a pulpit committee, but you're going to have to sit uh, 52 Sundays a year and listen to the fellow go on. And uh, so if you're going to be listening to any preaching from a pastor, then you need to hear the message this morning so you'll know what it is you're looking for in a pastor. The second individual that needs to hear the message this morning is anybody who feels that God has called him to be a minister of the gospel. Uh, many, many years ago, the great old sage who we miss very, very much by the name of Vance Habner made the statement that is so true. He said that the pastor of the smallest Baptist church in rural Tennessee would be stepping down to accept the presidency of the United States. Folks, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but if God has called you to be a pastor, he has placed in your hand treasure that makes you the most important thing happening in the whole world. What they do in Washington, D.C., God bless them. Sometimes it's good. Most times it's awful. Uh, and who knows what's going to come out of the government in any given location. But when a pastor is doing what God has put in his heart to do and working with his congregation, it will transform the world. If you don't know for sure what God is calling you to do today, young man, I pray that you will take this matter to him and ask the Lord, would it be possible that you would call me to be a pastor? There is no nobler assignment in the earth. You say, well, you're not a pastor. That's correct. God called me to do a secondary ministry. And it is decidedly secondary. President of something, I don't care what you're president of. The fact is, there's no more noble calling than to be a pastor. Vast majority of our professors here believe that. They're here because God called them to come here, not because they really want to be. They really want to be in the pastorate. And I have to watch them all the time. They'll slip off and go to the pastorate. 
And so you just got to keep an eye on them all the time. And uh, it is actually noble and wonderful. You don't want people teaching you, future pastors, who don't have that as a deep commitment. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and reading to verse 9. For this reason I left you on the island of Crete, so that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, if a man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, or literally children of the faith, who are not accused of riot or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, nor given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince those who speak against the word of God. What an amazing passage of scripture. I cannot in 30 minutes allotted to me deal with every portion of it, but if God has called you to be a pastor, I would urge you to sit down with your Greek New Testament and look at every word. Do your homework carefully so that you can see what is required of you. You say, well, that's a double standard. You better believe it. That's the reason James says, be not many of you teachers, knowing that you shall receive the greater condemnation. Everybody will be judged before the judgment seat of Christ, no doubt about that. But beware that long after your congregation has gone on into heaven and has had a few hundred years to enjoy it, you, pastor, will still be standing at the judgment seat of Christ, accounting for every one of the sheep in your flock. No wonder it is a high standard that God sets for his pastor. Well... Evidently, Paul had been to the island of Crete, and he left his son in the ministry, Titus, there. Why did he leave him there? There are two specific assignments that Titus, as a, I suppose we might call him a sub-apostle, but an apostolic legate, two things that he has to do. Number one, set in order the things that are wanting. The word is epidiortheo in the New Testament, and it is a medical term that is most often used for setting a broken limb. So if you're riding in the chariot races and, and uh, your chariot gets turned over, the likelihood is that when you hit the uh, dirt, a horse is going to cross over you and break your arm when he goes across. Well, what does the 
physician do? He sets it. He places it back where it can heal and become operative again. Now, we've already seen in our last message that there were some serious problems with the culture of Crete. And in the early churches that were founded there, it was inevitable that there would be problems that were residual from the culture in which they were located. That is always true, friends. You're not going to a church that is not in a culture. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. There are going to have to be some things that get fixed. There are going to have to be some setting of broken limbs. So number one, he is to be a physician to those local churches. But number two, notice that he is also to appoint elders in every city to which they had gone and where they had a church. Now the term elder is one of three terms that are used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe one person. The term elder is a word, presbyteros, which originally meant an old man. And uh, the importance of that was that in antiquity and still in the Middle East today and even more so in the Far East, there is a tendency to honor those who are elderly. They need to visit America where we throw them away. But um, in those cultures, there was an understanding that there was a value to be gained by being an experienced person. And uh, when experience was available, there was less likely uh, to be mistakes made uh, that were made out of improper judgment and lack of exposure to reality. And, and so they honored them, and uh, it was unthinkable that a son would dishonor a father in any way. And I, I'm going to speak about it only from that angle and only to say one thing. If you have had a tragedy in your home where you grew up without a father who cared about you, I'm sorry about that. And because it affects your viewpoint of the fatherhood of God often. But I want to tell you that if that's the case, you have an obligation to your father. You didn't get here without him. And so the very fact you have life means that you have an obligation to find him if you haven't had an opportunity to make friends of your father and to share with him the gracious news of the salvation of Christ. That's something you owe him and you owe God. And so the word elder was applied to people like Timothy and Titus, who were probably in their 30s. And so in a sense, they were not elders. But what God is saying by the use of that term presbyteros or elder to describe a pastor is that the pastor is to be treated the same way. Now, I have no sympathy whatever at all for pastors who fail in their commitment to Christ to stand up to these requirements and that kind of thing. But I want to tell you, in spite of that, there are a lot of churches that don't deserve to have a pastor. They're so mean and unkind and ugly to them in every way. A pastor 
is to be treated as though he were an older man, even if he's a younger man. He is to be accorded that kind of deference. Now, it isn't following him blind off a cliff. Uh, pastors often do wrong things, and sometimes the church needs to confront them and uh, deal with it, no question about it. But how you confront them and how you deal with them in that position is a different matter. And you don't confront them with disdain. You confront them carefully because they are elders. The second word used to describe uh, the same man uh, occurs later in the passage, and uh, it is the word episkopos, episkopos. If you have, uh, it, it comes from epi, meaning over, and skapas, meaning to see. If, for example, you have a telescopos, you have an instrument that enables you to look far out into space and see what you couldn't see otherwise. If you have a microscopos, you have an instrument there on your desk that enables you to see the infinitesimally small that you couldn't see with the naked eye. If you have a stethoscopos, uh, that's the one that the doctor has around his neck. He comes in and opens your shirt and says, breathe deeply, and you can't because the thing's so cold, it's frozen you uh, to the place. But anyway, that's a stethoscopos, and through his ears, he listens to what's going on internally. Well, an episcopos uh, is an overseer. It's one of the words for a pastor, an elder, and it refers to the oversight that he has in the church. Now, the episcopos is not a king. The episcopos is not a president. The episcopos is not a ruler. But he is nevertheless responsible for leading the church of God. So he has to learn principles of Christian leadership. Don't read books on that. They all say exactly the same thing. They only change the illustrations from book to book. You want to read Christian leadership? Read the life of Moses and the Bible, and you'll learn the principles of Christian leadership, both positively and once or twice negatively. And, and so the episcopus has administrative responsibility. Once in a while I run somebody and say, I don't want to do that. I just want to preach. It reminds me that I prayed for years, Lord, would I ever be in a big enough church to have a church administrator? And finally, I got one. Praise the Lord. Man, I got me a church administrator, an executive pastor. And my load increased by five times as a result of having that guy. I was praying for too long, Lord, could I ever get rid of a church administrator? I, I tell you what, uh, so just beware, you can't get away from it, you're going to have to do it. The third word is the word poimain. Now, I want to stress to you, because you get a bad picture, you get a picture of this that is not New Testament, listen to people talk today, the poimain is the pastor. The word means a shepherd. It more adequately displays the work of a pastor than any other word. Uh, 
The pastor, the shepherd, is responsible for the well-being of the sheep, to feed the sheep, to take them to water, to protect them from the varmints that come along. Uh, he is responsible for all of that. He is the shepherd. Now look, he is the shepherd. He's the bishop or the episcopos. He is the elder. The word elder is a term representing how he should be approached by the people. The term episcopos, his responsibilities to lead the church. And the term poimen, his spiritual responsibilities. Now remember, they are all three synonymous, used in one verse in 1 Peter, as a matter of fact. And they all refer to the same individual or individual. So people come to me and they say, well, did the early church have a plurality of elders? And I say, they sure did. Had a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors, and a plurality of bishops. How do you like that? Where it was needed. If it was a very small church, they probably only had one. There's no harm done in that. As the church grows past 50 members, you can't possibly take care of all that many sheep. If you think you can, let me put you out on a ranch in West Texas and give you 51 sheep, and we'll see how you do with them, but they'll run you ragged. And so you get most, much over 50, you're going to have to have an additional pastor, a plurality of elders. Is it a plurality of elders that are, quote, lay elders? Why don't you find for me somewhere in the Bible where there are lay elders? You just come up to me at the close and say, here they are, lay elders. You'll find them, 3 Hezekiah 6, 4. Uh, and uh, you won't find them anywhere else. No, the elders were the pastors of the church. Well, they find there, there's a complete equality of elders in the church. You won't find that anywhere in God's Word. When God got ready to bring the children out of Israel, Jewish children out of Israel, he didn't call a committee. Listen, a camel is still a horse put together by a committee. And so you're not going to have a committee to lead the church of God. He's going to call a man who's going to be the leader. Now look, the presidency of the school here, I have five vice presidents. I thank God for them. They give me immense guidance. I have a whole bunch of deans, and I couldn't get along without them. I don't know everything. I can't do everything. i got to have these people. But I also want to tell you that when a final decision is to be made, guess who makes it? And that's what God has called me to do here. But don't get too proud of that because he also holds me responsible in a way that nobody else is. When you're a pastor, when you're the, you call him whatever you want to, the lead pastor, you call him the senior pastor, you call him anything you want to, he's still the pastor. And uh, that pastor is going to give account to God. Well, what's he going to give an account for? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, appoint these elders in every city as I've commanded you. And here's what his life looks like. First of all, he is blameless, anegkletos in Greek, which means above accusation. Well, you got to throw in the towel right now. If you're not going to have any accusations, that's not going to happen. You may not the first six weeks, but 
week seven, there'll be somebody that has an accusation against you. That's not what the word means. The word doesn't refer to the fact that you're never falsely accused. It refers to the fact that the accusations don't stick. His life is lived in such a way. It's like throwing mud with too much water in it on a brick wall. It falls right off. You're going to get accused, but your people know, eh, I don't think so. That's not his life. That's not what he is. And they see your life, and they know that. So blameless, the accusations don't stick. He is the husband of one wife. Literally, that phrase is an extension. It's only three words in Greek, meus, gunaikos, on air. A one-woman man. Now, do I have your attention, please? There's enough of you going to be mad at me anyway. I don't want you to be mad at me except if you really think it through and really are. All right? We live in a wonderful day. God is a God of forgiveness. And whatever it is you've been through, God will forgive you and accept you mercifully, and you're in the right place to be in the church of the living God because the church will welcome you. No matter what you've done, welcome. We're in a prison program down there in South Texas right now. I'm walking through there the other day and talking to a man, and I said, what you in for? He said, murder. And I said, uh, how many counts? He said, well, 12 that I was convicted for. I said, there are more? He said, well, yeah. And I said, you guilty? He said, oh, yeah. And uh, I said, uh, it must be a horrible thing to live with. He said, it's unbelievably bad, except for the mercies of God. And he said, I found forgiveness. And he said, now I've got to spend the rest of my life trying to give life instead of take life. Listen, that's, that's what this business is all about. This business is about saving sinners of whom I am chief. And if God can save me, he can save anybody. And so that's what this business is about. You bet. But that does not mean that I am qualified to do everything. There are qualifications for him who would serve as a pastor, an elder, an overseer of the people. And here it is. He is a one-woman man. You say, well, man, I've had the tragedy of a divorce, but it occurred before I was saved. And yeah, that mitigates it somewhat. It certainly does. It, it uh, uh, means that God's forgiveness certainly extends to you, but it also would extend to somebody that had a divorce after he or she became a Christian. Sure, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you're qualified. Let me tell you what happened in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, a man is a priest. He meets the qualifications. He's working one day uh, on the uh, altar in the outer court, and he is preparing the animal to be sacrificed, and he gets a little bit of careless, and he chops off half of his pinky, half his finger. It's gone. In those days, they can't sew it back on. It's out of there. He's gone. Guess what? He's not qualified to be a priest anymore. Well, did he do anything wrong? No. 
It happened while he was doing good, as a matter of fact. And yet, he is no longer qualified to serve in the capacity of priest. Does that mean he can't do anything for God? No. He can do a thousand things for God, but he doesn't meet the qualification of being a priest where there was a very high level of qualification. Now listen, God does not have divorce as the worst of all sins. It is not the worst of all sins. It's certainly not the unforgivable sin. Uh, from the viewpoint of the victim, murder is worse. There is something very final about it. It's hard to undo. And so while all of that is true, the fact of the matter is that there are certain things that qualification-wise, a pastor must meet. And one of them is he must be a one woman man. Now look, I'm 118 years old. I've read all of the positions multiple times that people try to take to revise this text. It's a very simple text. A one woman man. That's not hard. That's pretty clear. You say, well, I'll just leave seminary. I, I, don't, I won't go any further. No, don't do that. That used to be the case when I was in seminary. If you were divorcee, you were not allowed to enter seminary at all. Guess who led the fight to change that? I did. It's part of the conservative movement in the convention. That was one of the things I got at. I said, if a man's been called of God, whatever he's had in his background, bring him on to seminary and let's prepare him. There are a thousand ministries out there that a man can do, should do, and must be done other than the pastorate. I personally tried to lead that fight and was successful with it. Now all six of our seminaries take people who have been through a divorce. I believe God forgives. I believe God will use you unbelievably. And if you do go in a pastorate and you call me up and say, would you come preach a revival? The answer is yes. And while I'm there, will I honor you as a pastor? Yes. I'm not going to put you down. Of course I'm going to do that. But I'm also going to tell you today, so that you've heard it, the Bible requirement for a pastor is that he be a one-woman man. I didn't say that. God said it. Argue with him. He shall be blameless. Why, one-woman man? Oh, this one's tough. Having children of the faith who are not accused of, here's a word that is called riotous living in the Gospels for the prodigal son, uh, not accused of riot or insubordination. There was a period of time, I've spoken of it before briefly, when I almost quit the ministry because I had a boy, precious boy, thank God he's got it straight now, but he was bitter, bitter, bitter against the church. He never stopped reading his Bible, never stopped praying, never stopped witnessing. We wouldn't have anything to do with the church of God. He was a believer, but, but he was not in subordination to the authorities in his life. And I came very near 
resigning from a position. Just praying away for that boy. He was long since out of the home, and some sense you're not responsible at that point, but it broke my heart. And I didn't quit because I take this seriously. I, I think all these requirements are very serious indeed. Notice, not accused of insubordination. Listen, young people, there are in this generation insubordination, the inability to relate properly to the authorities that God places in your life is a badge of accomplishment, not before God. You've got to learn to respond to the authorities God places in your life. Now, I thought about doing this. This is an ugly thing to do, but you know me. Sure doesn't happen in seminary, does it? You ought to hear the reactions that we get to parking tickets. I'm privileged. I shouldn't have to pay one. Yeah, I parked on the lawn, but, uh, you know, I, there was an emergency situation. I was late for class because I stopped by to have a beer on the way over, and uh, I, I should be, uh, uh, you know, that's why I tell them, send them all to the chaplain. He deals with spiritual problems on campus, and it's a spiritual problem. And then you get mad at him because he's not sympathetic. He says, pay the fine. But listen, let me tell you, the most important thing you got to do, almost, is to learn how to responsibly relate to authorities that God places in your life. Do you know why that's true? Can I tell you? It's not because God has something about relating to police officers or relating to uh, your professor or relating to somebody like that. It's because if you don't learn how to relate responsibly to the authorities that God puts in your life, you will never in the world relate responsibly to God who is the ultimate authority that God places in your life. Now, do I like it? No. I backed my car in over there the third week I was here as president. Make it easier. Just get in, go out, don't have to back out. You know what this low-down security bunch did to me? They gave a ticket to the president of the institution. Who said amen? <laughs> Man, I protested. I got all over them. I said, you can't give a ticket to the president of this institution. No, I didn't. I did wrong. I knew I did wrong when I did it. I deserved the ticket, and I double paid it. Just to be able to say to you, learn to relate to the authorities God put in your life. And some of you are angry half the time because you can't relate to authority. You must learn to relate appropriately to the authorities that God places in your life. If your children don't, if you don't do it, your children won't either, and they'll be guilty of uh, dissipation and insubordination. Well, the bishop must be blameless. There's that word again, anagkletos, which means uh, um, the charge doesn't stick, and he is to do so as a steward of God. Don't miss that one. The word is oikonomos. It literally means 
the law of the house. Namas is law, oikos, the house, the law of the house. You know what? It refers to a slave. It's one of the multiple words in the New Testament that are used to describe a slave, and all of them describe us. You've heard me say before, I repeat again, you are without any rights. When you come to Christ, you become a slave, a doulos, the broad general term, of Christ, and you don't have any rights anymore. All you have is responsibilities. The responsibility to serve your master and those that got much responsibility were called oikonomos, that is, an overseer, a steward of the household. This household is not him. It doesn't belong to him. We make that mistake. I do all the time. My church. No, it's not. It's God's church. You are the oikonomos of it. You're the steward that is placed there to see to it that your people amount to everything they're supposed to amount to for God. You're just the steward. You're a slave. Yeah, you got heavy responsibility, but no rights. Get over that. If you can't get over the point where you think you have some rights you're going to defend and take up for, then you do need to get out of God's work and get as far from the church of God as you possibly can. You're destined for a very troublesome journey if you don't. We must be blameless as a steward of God. Now things get rough for me. Not self-willed. I, I tell you, if one thing doesn't get you in this passage, other than will. Not self-will. Let's well, see, the problem with my Irish ancestry is, man, we got a will to be in the front of everything. And uh, I read, not self-willed. What am I to be? I'm to be... Holy Spirit willed. I'm be looking for his assignment. One of the problems that Baptist churches got into in yesteryear, and many of them still do it, is the business meeting problem. And you'd hear people say, well, we're going to meet together, and then everybody votes what he thinks is right. No, that's not the way it works. When we come together and we take a vote, we first of all seek the face of God, and to the best of our ability, we vote what we think God wants. Now, we may have to apologize to him later when we learn better, but we don't have a right to vote our own will about anything. We find God's will, and that's what we support, okay? Clear enough. Oh, dear. Do we have to do this? Not quick-tempered. Painful. Folks, God's telling the truth about that. If you're quick-tempered, if you got a quick temper, don't you dare go in the pastorate until God gets it under control. One night in a little old East Texas congregation, I just lost my temper. Fortunately, nobody knew I lost it, but I did. And I'm 
sorry to have to report to you, I was seriously contemplating the execution of a minister of music. <laughs> Did the most foolish thing I ever saw. I was so angry. God spoke to my heart. It was an 18-year-old boy. Said, Paige Patterson, you are unusable. until you get the temper out of you. I remember walking out behind that church. I was going to speak there in a few minutes and lying down in the pine needles and sobbing my way back into the presence of God and it as if it were my conversion. And I begged God, take my temper away. You know what? He didn't do it. But he taught me in that moment how to make my temper bend to the Spirit of God. Unless you've learned that, you're not ready to be in pastoring. Quick-tempered, not quick-tempered. Oh, dear. I don't mind this one, but y'all going to be mad. Not given to wine. You know what? I didn't write that in there. It's in every Bible I got. Not given to wine. If you had a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, you never touched the stuff. Not a single drop to your lips. I'll just tell you this. You take whatever position you want to on it, but no good ever comes out of alcoholic beverage. And person after person after person has his life majorly disrupted. Have you been reading the newspaper? No, you don't read the newspaper. Have you been reading your phone lately? <laughs> One after another of leading pastors in this nation has gone down the drain and lost their ministry due to alcohol. Somebody, you would think, would say, something's wrong here. There is something wrong. It's a violation of God's Word. If you want to imbibe a little on the side, please just don't go in the pastorate, would you? Okay. Oh, dear. Not violent. That one hurts too, but there it is. But I want to get this next one. Not greedy of money. If I ever catch you asking what you're going to be paid in the church, I will, as much as in me is, show up and whip you. <laughs> what are you doing? God called you to the ministry. If he called you to a church, go do it. Who cares what they pay? Well, they don't... There is not a month that goes by that I don't get a letter saying... Well, would you recommend me to this church? Okay, I'll do it. I'll send a letter of recommendation. Come back later. Well, they didn't pay enough, so I turn them down. Do what? It doesn't matter. Hey, look, I don't know what my salary is right now. It's too much, I can tell you that. But the trustees voted it, and it's the first time in my life I've ever made any money to amount to anything, but it, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. Now it's too much. All my life in ministry until now, it was way too little. But it's pretty obvious I've survived, haven't I? 
and it's just not an issue. We talked already this week about credit card indebtedness. You know what that is? Credit card indebtedness is a confession that you love money too much. And so the fact of the matter is the love of money is the root of all evil. Would you just get that out of your system? If God has called you to be a pastor, you're going to be a pastor. It may be to a small congregation, may be to a large congregation, may be much money, may be little money. It doesn't matter. Professors here learn rather quickly that it isn't real good to go to the president and say, I think I should make more money because what actually happens usually is I charge them for the visit and they end up making less visit, less money. I know what they're going through. I know it very well. Work day and night to try to change it, make it better. But I don't want a man of God coming to me and putting it in terms of money. We're almost through. Hang in there. Not greedy for money, hospitable. I have here a book. I've mentioned this before, but it's been three or four years, so some of you had not heard it. Maurice Hendus, um, who traveled in the Soviet Union during the closed days. He alone was able to get in there and do, uh, um, uh, do uh, documentaries on the Soviet Union. He wrote this book, House Without a Roof. It's very interesting. I was looking through it on a used book stand one day, and I thought, That'd be interesting. And lo and behold, I turn over there, and uh, in chapter, where is this? Uh, chapter 7, there is a chapter called The Triumph of the Baptists. And I thought, oh my goodness, Maurice Hendus is an atheist. What's he doing writing a chapter about the triumph of the Baptists? So I turned and looked at it and said, shortly afterwards, while traveling through the province of Saratov, I came to a village where the chairman of the local Soviet put me up for the night with a Baptist family because, as he said, quote, they have a very clean house, end of quote. <laughs> what if I came to your house? Um, <laughs> indeed, it was one of the cleanest peasant homes I'd ever seen. The board floor was untracked by mud and the walls neatly whitewashed, uh, white curtains at the windows, and miracle of miracles, hardly a fly in the house and no bugs in my bed. I lived with this family for several days and observed that the man was extra extraordinarily polite to his wife. Sweet. <laughs> and that he was kind to his animals, even to the pigs, and that he was more advanced farmer than the others who lived in the village. He was a new type of peasant in the Russian countryside, scrub-free in speech and manner of the barbarisms that had for centuries been degrading what Russians called bite, that is, the mode of daily life of the peasantry. In my further travels in villages, I always inquired whether there was a Baptist family there, and if there was, I stayed with them, knowing that I would live in a clean house in a tranquil family atmosphere where the man would defer to his wife with a sense of chivalry that was as new as it was refreshing in Russian peasant society. Pastor of all people, ought to be deeply committed 
to hospitality. Now watch very quickly. He is a lover of everything good. He is sober in his thoughtfulness. He is just. He is holy. That's not the usual word for holy. That's hosian. Uh, and he is self-controlled. And then finally, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught so that he may be able to do two things by sound doctrine to exhort parakaleo. It means give an invitation. Kaleo is to call paras to stand by you as a given invitation. It occurs repeatedly in the New Testament. And we don't give invitations anymore. Moderns don't respond to them. Thousands respond to them every year. That is a fallacy that's as untrue as anything could possibly be. You don't give an invitation because you hadn't learned how. And you've accepted the popular word on the street among those that are supposed to know. He says, by sound doctrine, you're to be able to convince them to come to Christ, parakaleo, to come and stand with you, and to convict, to bring conviction to those to whom you speak. That is what the pastor is supposed to do. I want you to just look at one word and we're through. The word holding fast. What does that mean? Well, when I was in college, we at Hardin-Simmons had some unusual things we did. Part of them were done regularly, and part of them only started being done when I got there. But anyway, uh, we uh, did some unusual things. One thing, the sport du jour was, of course, rodeo, and uh, that's kind of unusual, and we had a good time with that. But also, once every year, we had an unbelievable thing. We had a sure enough rope pull. Now, where, where you do a real rope pull, what you do is you, you hollow out a huge area in between the two groups that are going to do the, pull, the tug of war. And you, for over a period of three or four weeks, you just keep watering that and you just keep stirring it until it is just seething mud six feet deep. And then on the day that comes, Everybody takes hold of this end of the rope, or everybody takes hold of this end of the rope. Now we came up with a little uh, something that would uh, make it more interesting. We decided there'd be some people who'd chicken out, and so didn't want that to happen, so we tied their wrist to the rope. Now, whoever loses in this tug of war is gonna be real obvious all day long till they can get over to the shower and clean up. They're going to be caked with mud. Everybody's going to be laughing at them, you know. So, man, when it got down to the tug of war, it was all out. I saw people that had never exercised a muscle in their life, giving it everything they possibly could. And the tug of war would go on and on and on until finally you'd see that first guy buckle and slip a little bit. And you knew, oh, here it comes. And this other side over there, they would see it too. And they would pull quickly. And when they pulled, poof, 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 one after another. They pulled them all in. You couldn't quit if you were on the end. Your wrists were tied to the rope, and it pulled you right on in. That's the picture that he paints of the pastor. The pastor 
is to pull against wrong doctrine. He is to pull against wrong doctrine with all of his might. He is the shepherd. He's got to protect his sheep against the pull of Satan. And so in his preaching, using sound doctrine, thoroughly familiar with every doctrine of the New Testament, far more than we can give you in three years on MDF here at the school, you've got to study beyond and beyond and deeper and deeper and deeper until you know the whole book. Yes, sir. And until it informs every muscle movement in your torso, you stay at it until you can, by sound doctrine, give an invitation to people to come to Christ and rebuke and convince those who are wrong. Did I tell you that it was a high mark? It is a high mark. I spend about half my time apologizing to God when I don't come up to it. But you need to understand it's the highest calling in the world. Nobody could be called to anything greater. Do it unto God.